Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today's guest is uh, is going to be super, super interesting. I mean, we're going to be learning going from corporate to startups, uh, working with the likes of Elon Musk. I mean, you name it. I think that it's going to be super exciting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Mateo Jaramillo. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. So originally born in California, there in, in Salinas, you know, in an agricultural uh, town where there's a lot of lettuce. So tell us about life growing up. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Salinas, uh, the, the salad capital of the country, as, as uh, we like to call it. Yeah, I mean, Salinas is a historically agricultural center. John Steinbeck is from there. Uh, so he, he, you know, if people know Salinas, it's because usually because of either one of those two things, Steinbeck or lettuce. And it was, you know, in many ways for me, a great, a great place to grow up because, well, I had great parents and, you know, really great friends. And it gave me a, a chance to, to really understand um, how that part of the, the world works. Uh, my parents were both public servants. My mom, a public school teacher, and my father, a, a lawyer for farm workers, which is why we grew up in Salinas. And so it was, for me, a, just a, a great experience. I mean, you know, we're very modest means, but that wasn't obvious to me. And uh, it was in many ways just a, a charmed upbringing because, uh, yeah, I think things just uh, went my way, I guess. Um, but uh, but Salinas has gone through a huge periods of growth and and certainly some struggles along the way. But it, but being from there uh, means that I I never really lose sight of uh, you know the the broader connection to the world out there. It's um, it's it's not. I, I worked in the field since a kid, in fact, um, and uh, you know spending time doing that. Uh, just means that I always carry a, a lifelong connection to, uh, to to labor and to working hard, frankly. So tell us about the emphasis around education early on. Well, I mean, the, for my, as for most folks, it comes from my parents. And, and my parents, you know, they were educators. Uh, many of my family are educators or academics. And uh, and so for them, education was very important. And uh, they, they imparted that both to me and my brother. And uh, so... Uh, you know, I was always a pretty ambitious kid, anyway, and and obviously competing in in academics is a is a clear uh, path to be ambitious. And so for me, it was also fun. Um, I enjoyed it, and um, and and I also had great friends who who also challenged me and and uh, on academics, and and we had fun doing it. And so that was you know in many ways luck, just pure luck to to have those kinds of friends. So I'm sure that they were very very proud when you when you got into Harvard. 
Uh, they were, <laughs> they were, yeah. Uh, not not many people from from Salinas go to Harvard, that's for sure. But uh, but I I wanted to to do something different and you know leave the state and go across the country where I didn't know anybody and and so for me it was a challenge that I was eager to take on, uh, and so th- th- that was my decision uh, for for college. Uh, but it was a big change to be sure. Uh, you know, <laughs> being a uh, being from Salinas and uh, and going over to that to that world was was quite a change. And it certainly took me some time to adjust, but the nice thing is that I learned that I could adjust and, you know, raising the standard for, you know, what is considered uh, excellence is, is always uh, an interesting path to go down. And uh, in many ways, it's something that I've tried to do ever since is uh, really understand how high you can raise the standard, both in the professional world and the academic world, whatever it is. You know, if, if you think you've, you've reached the limit, you're probably wrong. And um, and my first real experience with that was was certainly going to Harvard. And obviously transitioning from farmland and letters to software. I mean, that's quite a change. <laughs> yeah. Well, coming out of uh, Harvard, I had a degree in economics uh, and graduated in 1999. And so this was smack dab in the middle of the, the very first tech boom. And, and Boston was one of the hubs there. Uh, many of the the companies uh, that were sort of making making waves were, were from the area, of course, in the Bay Area too, but but in Boston as well. And uh, so immediately out of college, uh, I joined up with a software company there, and uh, you know was doing product management that kind of thing, and and definitely saw the the froth of the bubble. Uh, I mean, the amount of money that that the company raised, uh, I forget the total, but well north of a hundred million dollars. And even to me, as you know, twenty two year old fresh faced kid out of college. It was shocking to me that the level of diligence that was done, and uh, sort of the the expectations of the product, which to me was was pretty ephemeral. Uh, so I so I, but I got to see it up front, um, you know, up close and up front, and uh, it was it was a very formative experience for me as well. Uh, I, I learned that I don't really have a passion for software per se. Um, I prefer hardware, and uh, and and working working on it in the way that I did, it just it didn't really sort of grab me. Uh, in the end, and 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 I realized that um, that that was just not the path for me. And then I also have to admit that you are the very first guest in I've, I mean hundreds of episodes that I've done already for for deal makers that realized that becoming a minister was not for you. <laughs> well, Alejandro, uh, many of the 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 folks that I talk to, they when they see, when they find out that I. Did go to divinity school. They say, "Well, you're the first person I met that has done that." I, I was the ranking theologian at Tesla the entire time I was there. You, you may be surprised to learn. Yeah, I, uh, after a, my experience in software, uh, looking for, I would say, a deeper meaning, uh, really, and so considered the ministry. You know, I'm a practicing Christian. Um, the den- denominations have shifted over the years, uh, but I grew up Catholic, and um, and and take my faith seriously, and I wanted to. Uh, to do to do exactly that and really investigate it, uh, I, I guess it's just part of my personality is to to try and dig deep on things to really understand them. And so for me, that was going to um, divinity school and um, certainly being open to the uh, to the path of ordination, uh, but really digging in academically, intellectually, uh, spiritually. And, and Yale was a great place for me to go do that. And then, how do you perhaps you know transition from from this to all of a sudden deciding that energy and perhaps even solar wind was something that you needed to go up? Well, as you point out, I, I realized early on, or, or the Yale Divinity School helped me realize uh, very early on that I was not cut out for the ministry. Uh, you know, that that, that requires a, a certain passion and a, a certain, you might even say, obsession in order for that to work. 
and I just didn't have it. I, I, I saw a lot of people who did, but, but that just was not me. And, um, and so I took those uh, skills that, that I have that they teach you there uh, for what they call vocational discernment and, uh, and applied them to find out what I did want to go work on. And, um, and the way that that is done is pretty simply is sort of paying attention to yourself in terms of what is really of interest and uh, what do you really gravitate towards and what have you worked on in your spare time and, and over the course of your life. And, and I said, I um, studied economics, but, but the particular angle for me was energy economics and in particular environmental justice uh, was, uh, was the area that for me captured most of my imagination and, and some of the internships I did were, were around that here in San Francisco, uh, pioneering environmental justice firm called Center on Race, Poverty, and the Environment. And that grows out of uh, my upbringing as well. And, you know, my dad being a lawyer for farm workers, you know, and, and those issues, you know, the issues of the environment and the way that they impact very specific communities, the disadvantaged communities and, um, and those communities bearing an, an unequal burden of uh, in, environmental depredation. And so, you know, for me, it, it was pretty easy once I started to sort of reflect on it to, to understand that 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 was an area of passion of mine that they broadly speak in the environment uh, because of the ability to uh to to have such an impact out there uh, on on people's lives and specifically uh disadvantaged communities and, and but i also um i'm not a public advocate um that's another thing that i learned about myself and uh and i liked i did although i did not like uh, the software per se i did really um, enjoy working in technology and seeing just how quickly you can change goalposts with technology, and um, and so that that was sort of what I pieced together and said, okay, I, I want to work in the environmental field and uh, in on the technology side of things. And um, and as I sort of pieced together the landscape uh, as I understood it at the time, this was two thousand and three. Uh, you could still uh, early days, but you could still see what was happening with solar and wind that that those prices were coming down, and it seemed like those would come down for some time. Uh, and if that was going to be true, um, then then it made logical sense to me that we we collectively would want a, a good way to store that energy, uh, given the intermittency associated with it. And so I, I made a sector bet. You know, that, that really was the logic that I stepped through. And, and where it led me was the energy storage to work in that field um, for uh, for my career. And so that's what I chose to do in uh, 2003, 2004. And the first step there was with Gaia Power Technologies. And obviously that ended up with an outcome that you were not hoping that that would be the case, but that was a really nice segue that got you into a 200-employee company called Tesla. Yeah, that's right. So a few years there in New York, uh, working with Gaia and doing some some pioneering things uh, on the distributed energy storage side of it. Um, you know, for for me, uh, proving that that this was going to be a durable market. Yeah, I, as, as I said, I sort of took a bet. Well, I saw that bet playing off, even if the technology wasn't quite ready for it. Um, and and very clearly, lithium-ion was going to be the technology that that led in the energy storage sector, the grid-connected energy storage sector. And Tesla, very clearly, was the leader in that space. And so uh, when I was introduced to J.B. Straubel, who's a co-founder and the CTO, of, he was, uh, of, of Tesla, and that's what we talked about. What do you do with batteries on the grid? And J.B. is uh, just a, an, an energy you know, savant in many ways, and he thinks about energy in all different uh, uh, ways, certainly in the car, and, you know, that's what he's best known for, but um, but but he has thought ex exhaustively about all sorts of angles of energy, and so, you know, storage on the grid was certainly something that he has been uh, kicking around his head, and and we just uh, hit it off in terms of the, the conversation there and what was possible, and so, um, so I ended up joining Tesla uh, primarily to be the business lead on the powertrain business, uh, which was uh, just getting started with Daimler. Um, and that was going to grow, but also 
uh, so that uh, we could start the efforts uh, in sort of a skunk works way for grid connected energy storage systems um, in 2009. Uh, and so, so that's really why I went there. Um, I, you know, I didn't grow up working on cars. I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, Roadster was interesting, of course. Uh, it's f- fun to drive, but I, I'm not magnetically drawn to them like many people who ended up working at Tesla. Um, I went to cars in many ways um, because Tesla was the company that had all the pieces that I could see were going to be required to succeed uh, putting energy storage on the grid. And so that's really why I went there. And obviously, Tesla, there you got to experience being part of a rocket ship because, I mean, now it has over 30,000 employees. When you started there, it was just a couple of hundred. So, so what did you learn? I mean, what was the biggest lesson, you know, about perhaps being in, in a rocket ship like that, that you knew that one day you would apply to your own business? I mean, there's so many great lessons to be learned uh, being at a place like Tessa over the arc that I was there. And, um, you know, I referenced my experience transitioning from Salinas to uh, Harvard. Uh, I, I would say the experience was similar going from from Gaia to, to Tesla. The, the standard uh, and, and the ambition at Tesla was, was just eye-opening to me. And... And that was, of course, was largely set in, in terms of the tone by Elon, but but the people that were there uh, snapped into it right away. And, and certainly JB was, was uh, you know, on par with, with Elon in terms of just the drive and the ambition and the, and the scope. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. You know, I, I just, I drunk it in and, and, uh, and really adapted to, to the way that, that Tesla liked to do business, which was fast and hard and um, and, uh, you, you know, with, with sort of limitless ambition, as I said, and I, there is one anecdote, uh, that, that I'm remembering, uh, that, I, that I think cap- captures a, a lot of what Elon really goes for. And, and our, there's, I, I heard the second half from somebody who was there it was, we're a relatively small company at the time. And there was somebody working on the audio system for the, um, for the roadster and, uh, you know, the, it's the roadster is pretty noisy and you know it's a little two-seater with a rag top and and so it's just kind of hard to get great audio in in that car and and somebody somebody made some comment they were doing a review of the, of the auto and, and elon and he was very unhappy with uh with with what was going on and somebody made some sort of comment like oh it's just it's just sound and elon he just stopped everybody in their tracks and said you don't understand I don't want to just make the best car in the world. I want to make the best car in the world by fucking far. And, <laughs> um, and, you know, and it was about the sound in the, in a roadster. Right. And, you know, who, who would sort of think that that was the area to sort of put your foot down and, and establish a standard, but that that's truly how Elon thought and thinks. And that's why Tesla is where it is today is because um, he, he exacts that kind of standard. And so it's hard to, uh, be around that and not absorb the lessons of it and and not really uh, imbue that in the way that you think about uh, the standard of work and the, and the way that you go about uh, attaining the level of excellence uh, for anything that you do, frankly, uh, but, but especially in your own you know, professional life. And certainly, you know, as I am now uh, running my own company, um, applying this, the same mentality, maybe not the same way, but, but the same mentality. So, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, working with someone like Elon Musk, I mean, now that they, when, Anyone that is out there, probably a lot of people listening, you know, to this to this episode, you know, are, are probably looking up to to Elon Musk as as one of the top uh, figures right now of of our generation. So, so, I guess you know, if you had to take, you know, perhaps like the three top things from your experience with uh, Elon, you know, what are those three things that maybe you know make him who he is today, and perhaps three things that that inspire you to perhaps you know. Uh, follow that course and execute the way that you need to on, on, form, on form energy, your business. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's two that I've already mentioned that the standard of excellence that, that he really demands and the scope of the ambition and, and, and how that's applied, of course, you know, all of us are, are building a car company, but, uh, but, but the mentality is, is certainly there. And, and then I, I think the other, you know, you, you hear a lot about sort of Elon's philosophy of first principles. I, I would state that a little bit differently. Elon is better than anybody I've ever seen blow away assumptions or really get to the root of what you truly are assuming about something. And that is true, whether it's a project plan or it's a technical design or it's a, uh, aesthetic design, doesn't matter. Um, he just has an ability to really reach down into an assumption and put his finger on the true heart of, of what that is. And, um, and that is enlightening to be able to, uh, to do that. And, and, you know, even for people who didn't realize that that's what the assumption was, he, 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 he challenges people to, to do that. And, you know, he, Elon can be profane and, and dismissive and belittling and, but he can also be funny and charming, and uh, you know he's a complicated person, like like everybody is. Uh, but he, but he has that unique ability to to combine all three of those things, and and you know really just drive what what a company can be and the people people within it. Um, so there's there's a ton to learn, of course, um, uh, watching him operate and, and being a part of that, uh, being on both ends of, of uh, you know his output. But uh, but those are sort of three three main things I would point to. So then after, I mean, seven years of, of being in, in this incredible journey with Tesla, you know, at one point, you know, did you decide that, that perhaps it's time to, to part ways and, and, and go at it, you know, for the first time, you know, and, and create your own baby? So, so how was that like? And, and what was that process to bringing Form Energy to life, which was a little bit unique via a merger? Mm. Yeah, it, it was two discrete steps, uh, leaving Tesla and then starting my own company. I, d I did not leave Tesla to start a company. I left Tesla because I needed a break, to tell you the truth. Uh, as you said, seven plus years there, uh, I, I'm, I'm married. Uh, I, I'm happily married. I would like to stay happily married. And we have my wife and I with three kids, uh, all, all school-age kids. And you know, it was just a lot. Uh, additionally, the company was a very different company from when I started. Uh, sort of th going from 300 to 30,000 people. That, that's a big change. And I had been promoted and, you know, started to do things that were not that exciting for me to do, frankly, you know, at that level, at that size of a company. And, um, and also trying to be self-aware about sort of my comparative advantage um, in, in the workspace and you know, operationalizing something to the, you know, nth degree is, is not what I'm best at uh, compared to what a lot of people can do, frankly. Um, but uh, so all of that sort of led, led to my decision to leave Tesla um, on good terms uh, with the company and, you know, having no regrets. We had launched Tesla Energy at that point. It had been, been going for about a year and a half and things were in a, were in a great place and the trajectory was phenomenal. Um, but it was clear to me that it was also time for me to, to take a break and to, to move on. And so, uh, so I parted ways at the end of 2016 and uh, for the first time in you know seven plus years, had had time to think. And for me, as I said, being committed to energy storage, for me that was okay. Well, what does come next for energy storage? Uh, what what does it look like? What are what are the remaining frontiers? If lithium ion uh, gets as cheap as we think it will, and Tesla's as successful as we think it will be with lithium ion, then what's left, if anything? And um, and it was really a thought experiment that that I started with, not the intention to start a company, but. Uh, but it also was pretty clear as I as I got into it, and I was hearing whispers of this from folks that I was talking to while at Tesla, of course, was and primarily the utility uh, executives um, was well, lithium ion is great, 
but it doesn't solve the biggest problem, which is how do I get rid of the coal and the natural gas, the high capacity factor natural gas that's running all the time, that steps in when, you know, when it rains for a week in California uh, in winter or when the polar vortex comes down and we don't have any wind in, in the upper Midwest, uh, you know, those kinds of questions. And, and absent some new technology, lithium ion is just, it's simply too expensive by a factor of 50 almost. Uh, to address those problems on the grid. And so um, so for me, the, it really was a thought experiment of well, what kind of energy storage would it take uh, to be able to replace those kinds of generation facilities with renewables and comp really not, not so much compete with lithium ion on the grid, but complement it. Um, what are the two kinds of, of assets that we would uh, likely uh, want? And, um, and, it, and I thought maybe the answer would be, well, nothing, nothing works. It's simply too expensive. In which case, then I shift my focus and I can go work on, I don't know, fusion or you know, carbon capture or something else. But at least I could sort of know that I had done the work to answer the, the real question of whether or not there was any form of energy storage that, that w- would work to, to do what uh, most needed to be done on the grid. So running through a you know, few months of process and started to refine what actually the specifications were uh, for a battery that, that might be able to do that. And somewhat to my own surprise, after after about three or four months of investigation, on paper had something that looked like it would work. And, and thanks to some good advice that I got from from friends and, and my wife and, and others, uh, they, they really encouraged me to start a company at that point. And so uh, at the age of 40, I became a first-time founder, um, somewhat to my own surprise. But, uh, but, but also without any hesitation in the end, um, it was very clear uh, that uh, what it would take. Um, you know, I'd done these kinds of development cycles before, um, I knew I had all the connections uh, that I needed to to raise money, but also to uh, have success in the market. You know, armed with sort of that standard from Tesla, and you know the drive to 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 be ambitious here. It was also not something I ever really questioned, and uh, it, it it came very naturally. I would say uh, more naturally than I would have guessed, certainly before actually having done it. And um, and so I started started the company. So then, why merging two companies like really pre funding pre Anything. I mean, why why merge into companies as the starting point? Yeah, I had after that thought experiment, I had I had ended up um, starting my own company, which I called Verse Energy, and um, and was sort of just starting to work on that. And um, I had I just gotten term sheets for funding, uh, in fact, and and right then I got a call. It was literally the the day after I think that I got got my first term sheet. Um, I got a call from a professor at MIT, a man named Yetming Chang. And yet, um, I'd known him uh, through the industry, and he's he's a real luminary in the academic space uh, for a lot of lithium-ion work that he's done uh, in his career. But um, he's also an inveterate uh, entrepreneur, so he's started six or seven companies now um, out of his lab at MIT. And um, and he said, hey, hey, Mateo, I, he- I heard through the grapevine you're working on long-duration storage. Uh, so am I. Why don't we just do it together? And he had already recruited a couple of other uh, folks to, to join his early effort, um, three other guys. Uh, uh, Ted Wiley, Marco Ferrara, and Billy Woodford, and um, they were they had an idea for for a longer duration storage, uh, cheaper than what lithium ion would ever be. And I had my idea, and um, you know we sort of kicked off a, a speed dating uh, experiment, if you will, over the course of a couple months. And I got to know them, and they got to know me. And none of us is uh, first time through on on energy storage. And you know my experience in at Gaia and at Tesla. You know, it, it's always harder than you think it's going to be uh, to to do something new, and and in the field of energy storage uh, in particular, if you're trying to develop a new chemistry, 
And so uh, we just, uh, one, we really liked each other, it turned out. And we had very similar views on on how to go build this kind of venture. And uh, we really um, thought that it would make the most amount of sense. It, it would reduce the most amount of risk and give us the highest chance of success, or said another way, uh, give us the least chance of failure <laughs> if we combine forces. We had two technical shots on goal, and we had the best possible people that we could that we could bring together uh, to go after that goal. And, um, and it just made a lot of sense. And so, uh, so we did, we ended up combining the, the two companies and, and put it together. And, um, and we also had investors who, who were encouraging of that move as well. And they said, um, if you guys uh, find a way to, to put together, we will invest in the company, not we'll let you come pitch or we'll think about issuing a term sheet. And I said, we will invest. And true to their word, um, we got, we had uh, three essentially co-lead investors, um, in the, in the newly formed company. And, it was extremely linear and, um, and, and really kicked off a, a culture, if you will, uh, for us as a company of uh, sort of putting the ego side in pursuit of the best possible thing for the company um, and having uh, investors who are, are right there uh, committed to, uh, to the path. So what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money with Form Energy? Well, this is relatively new for us. When we started out, uh, we didn't even know what the chemistry would be. We, we essentially had a well-defined problem statement, and then we're going to go find the best possible solution for it. We had the two chemistries in hand uh, that, that we had to go prove out, but there were lots of other ideas on the table as well. Uh, we have since, of course, uh, down-selected. That, that was right when we started uh, three-plus years ago. But, uh, but now we have uh, a chemistry that we are commercializing. We're going forward. Uh, forward with, we've now raised $127 million or so. And the commercialization path is pretty clear. The business model itself um, is very much uh, evolving as we figure out the right transaction modes in the market. Now, we are we know what the versions of, of it can be, but the exact right combination of that um, is still to be determined. And that's because the way that uh, entities procure these kinds of assets in the market vary depending on what kind of market it is. Um, the utility market is highly regulated uh, and subject to all sorts of stakeholder interest. And so um, the way that we would transact in California, for example, uh, will look quite different from the way that we would transact, uh, let's say, in uh, the southeast of the United States uh, or in the United Kingdom or in you know mainland Europe. Um, and so our business model has to be flexible to be able to transact large-scale infrastructure projects, which is what this battery is, um, in each of those markets. Um, but the short, long and short of it is we are creating a very valuable battery and we will sell it. Very cool. Very cool. And, and where do you think that the market, you know, as a whole is going? Because, you know, there's a lot going on now around energy, you know, with the climate change and all of this stuff. So, so where do you think, you know, where do you think that everything is heading really as a whole? Yeah. Well, I mean, the transition is well underway, um, as the industry refers to it, the energy transition. And that is broadly away from, you know, on the utility side of things, away from burning uh, fossil fuels and into uh, renewables. And, and renewables are just the, the cheapest marginal form of, of energy electricity that's out there. And so taking advantage of that is, is in everybody's interest. And so as a result, you have a lot of uh, people who are coming into the space and saying, well, we're come up with new ways to use it. And in particular, the energy storage space um, has a lot of interest uh, because there are some very clear gaps in the market right now. And lithium mine, as I said, um, doing what it's going to go do. Uh, and yet there's still um, room for uh, new entrants. And, and so you, you hear this term increasingly in the industry uh, of quote unquote long duration storage. 
but that covers a very wide spectrum of, of solutions. Everything from six hours of lithium ion, as opposed to you know two or four, that's what some people consider to be long duration, to eight hours or 10 hours of, let's say, a flow battery or other mechanical forms of storage or thermal storage. Um, but what form is really targeting is multi-day storage. So the, the kind of energy storage that is cost-effective over, let's say, 100 plus hours. And that's really where you need to be, you know, cost-effective in that regime to be able to replace the function of those coal plants or those high-capacity factor natural gas plants, uh, because that's how 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 they run. Um, that's when they step in and they're running for you know flat out for for hundreds of hours, and so that is the the value most valuable function to to go replace. That's where a lot of the energy into the grid comes from, and so um, so being able to store the renewable cheap renewable but intermittent sources of energy cost effectively over those periods is, is really that big challenge. And that's what we're going after. And so for us, we don't, we don't really compete with uh, a lot of the you know, sub 24 hour type energy storage uh, assets that are out there, whether it's lithium ion or any other uh, type of, uh, of chemistry or, or mechanical storage or whatever. Um, we're really competing with uh, continuing to run the thermal plants. Um, or using hydrogen for storage, or potentially carbon capture, or building more transmission. But it's a very different category of things. And, and as far as we know, we're the only uh, approach on the energy storage space that really does uh, offer a viable solution for that multi-day storage problem. And obviously, your space is changing very quickly. So I guess if I was to ask you, let's say if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of form energy is fully realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, it's... Uh, 100% decarbonized grid uh, by using renewable energy and enabled by our uh, batteries. So uh, wind, water, and solar are going to be the cheapest form of energy in the future. And we need to be able to store that, that type of energy over different time periods. And we will have short duration storage and we will have multi-day storage. And ours is the multi-day storage. And you, you look at a lot of the projections over the next 30, 40 years, uh, you know, from Bloomberg or or uh, the IEA, or you, you name it, um, they all still expect uh, that that in that time frame we're still using a lot of coal and natural gas. Why? Because they can't Im imagine any other technical intervention coming in and um, and replacing those assets. And you know, back to my early days, you know, thinking about environmental justice and and how uh, technology can can intervene in dramatic ways in, in in people's lives. That's exactly what we're after. And so, you know, my 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 dream would be that um, that in fact we we do commercialize the chemistry that we have and and, and I I sincerely believe we're going to go do that um, and it means that we are enabling a completely uh, renewable grid um, and the the transfer to electrification broadly speaking means that that's a transfer to a transition to uh, clean energy uh, broadly and um, enabled by our by our technology. So let me ask you a question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, imagine that, you know, we have the opportunity here to put you in, in a time machine, and, and you go back, and, and you are now in, back in 2016, that moment when you're leaving Tesla, that moment where you are launching, about to launch your first business, you're 40 years old. Uh, if you had the opportunity of give one piece of advice to that younger self before launching a business, what would that be and why based on what you know now? I, I would love to say I'm, I'm uh, a lot wiser over the course of a few years. I, you know, I, I guess one, one thing I would say is that, you know, that whatever self-doubts that I did have, you know, the, the, that was not really, 
they were not really justified. And that's because I'd spent my whole career really preparing for, for that moment. You know, if I could go back even further in time, <laughs> you know, and, and talk to an even early, earlier version of myself, I, I would say, you know, be patient and uh, really invest in, uh, in being an expert in, in the sector and, and at your job, which is developing technologies and bringing those into market. And for me, that's energy storage. Um, but, uh, I, uh, but I never considered myself to be sort of the, you know, the, the, of the type of entrepreneur that's charismatic and, you know, selling everybody everything. And, you know, you know, from the age of nine years old, starting my own business, that was never me. But by the time I was 40, I found out that there was, you know, there's one thing in particular that I know a lot about and that I, that I was very prepared um, to lead a company around. And so, you know, I, 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 I felt sure, but you know, there, there's still some doubts the first time you do anything new. And so maybe the message would be, you know, tr trust in the preparation that you put in. Uh, all the hard work and the and the time spent. I love it. Mateo, I love it. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, you can reach me over LinkedIn, of course, Mateo Jaramillo. Uh, give a search there and uh, feel free to shoot me a note. I'm, I'm always interested to hear from folks. Amazing. Well, Mateo, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Alejandro, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.